Lord, we love you and trust you. Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 7. This is part 2 of our study of Ezra chapter 7. Um, we discussed last week who Ezra is. This is the first time Ezra shows up in the text. Uh, Ezra has not been in the book up to this point. And now he comes onto the scene. Remember, there's a 60-year gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7 where we find Esther's story. Um, and Esther, not mentioned in the book of Ezra, but clearly plays a big part, if you're familiar with that story. Esther goes before the king and prevents the genocide of the Jews. Thank you. And prevents the genocide of the Jews here uh, in Israel. So I want you to go to Ezra chapter 7, verses 11, and we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. So let's dive in. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in the matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hands. And also to carry the silver and the gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and the gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem, with this money then... You shall with all diligence buy bulls and rams and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings. You shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasures in, in all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra, the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests of the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants 
of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the law of your God, and those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who puts such things as this into our hearts, into the hearts of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before the king's mighty officers, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. And may God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. As we come to Ezra chapter 7, the letter that Artaxerxes wrote, we're going to just remind ourselves of a couple things. Number one, the temple sacrifices have been restored. The temple is finished and the sacrifices have been restored. God has worked to restore these things. They have been reinstituted. But remember that one of the things we're going to see in the rest of the book of Ezra and into Nehemiah is that the temple being restored and the sacrificial system being restored does not change the hearts of people. It does not change the hearts of people. So at the end of the book of Nehemiah, which is the culmination of Ezra and Nehemiah, at the end of that book, you're going to have a lament given by Nehemiah that's talking about how injustice is still there, people are still oppressed, and there's still a problem in the heart of man. And the reason that is, is because this entire book, Ezra, Nehemiah, is intended to point us to our need to Jesus, to our need for Jesus, the It's intended to point us to no matter how great the system is, no matter how great the buildings are, no matter how great all the stuff is, no matter how how prepared we are, we still require a change of heart, and that change of heart can only come in Jesus Christ. So, the temple is finished, sacrifices are restored. We've seen that God has worked through Persian pagan kings to serve His purpose. Remember Cyrus in chapter 1, verse 1, God does... Cyrus does what God has decreed in the book of Jeremiah. Seventy years there will be an exile. Cyrus will come along and he will pass a decree telling everybody to come home. So Cyrus, a pagan king who Isaiah says does not know, does not know Yahweh, gives the decree from Yahweh to, the, to send all the people of the Jews home. So God works through Cyrus. And in chapter 6, verse 14, Darius and God say the same thing. They are given the same. The decree is from Darius and from God of heaven, from God himself. They're in agreement. And then here in chapter 7, verse 27, God puts it into the heart of Artaxerxes. So before we go any further, three pagan kings are given as an example for you that leaders in the world do not go anywhere without God doing something. They don't make decrees that God does not work through and end. They are people who are led by God's hand, sometimes in ways 
that we don't even understand. Indeed, Darius has an inscription that's recorded in history where he says, Darius, by the hand of Ahura Mazda, the creator god in Persia, that Darius is the king by the hand of the creator god. So Darius, even Darius, the king, recognized that there was an an almighty power above him. Now, the funny thing about uh, all these pagan religions, all these all these uh, Eastern religions in particular, is that they cannot know this God. He is distant and far from them. Even the ones they name are distant and far from them. They are high and far away. They can't know them by name. So they have these, these titles that they give kings. The kings of Persia understood that they were powerless Unless there was a divine God above them. Which makes it all the more frightening when supposed Christian leaders fail to recognize the God that is above them. Even pagan kings in history recognized that there was a divine council above them. There was something above them. Which makes it all the more frightening when a king nowadays or a president or a senator or congressperson or anyone makes it, forgets that and decides that they are going to insist that there is no God above them. That they are making decisions because they are in effect themselves gods. This is frightening reality that we find ourselves in either practically or uh, theologically, when a politician or a leader begins to deny the existence of God, they begin to stray from natural course of history into unnatural rejection of obvious truth. So, the kings here in this story have been worked through, even though they don't know Yahweh. They have been worked through the decrees of God, the Lord God Almighty, they have been worked through. God has worked through them to do his purposes. And then third, we see that the temple and ritual have been restored. Remember what it takes to have a nation. Remember what it takes to have a nation. A law, a land, and a people. You have to have law, land, and people to make a nation. So far, they have land and they have people. They've got the temple rebuilt. Land And they've got people. Ezra is going to come and literally bring to the people the law. So they are about to be a nation again. That's part of the reason that it's so critical that we understand that this ritual being restored and the temple being restored is not quite enough to make them an independent nation. They require the law of God. And what has been emphasized just in that first read-through, I hope you caught it, how often Ezra's... The law of God is in his hands. He is the one bringing the law of God to the people of God. They've got people, they've got land mostly, and they've got a law that has come now with Ezra. The temple is a shadow of greater things to come, which we'll cover a little bit in just a second. But remember that while Ezra brings the law of God to the people and reads it out loud, Jesus writes the law on our hearts. So when we think about the law of God, 
we need to understand Christ has rewritten our hearts with the law of God in it. That's what we see the greater Ezra here. So the temple is a shadow of a greater one to come, both the church and the final one that we read about in Revelation. So just one note of application. It is not enough to have the right systems, the right buildings, and the right teaching. It is not enough to have the right systems, the right buildings, and the right teaching. I, I do a lot of pastoral work where I deal with other pastors, and, and I almost always get told about some book that some pastor is reading or writing or something that somebody's doing that just, they found the system that works. They found the system that will fix all your problems. They found this great system that will change the way the church runs and, and it will be the answer. And I just have to tell you, both from experience and from this text, it does not matter how good your system, how good your building, how good your proclamation or your skill at doing things or your talents. It does not matter without Jesus changing the heart of people we end up doing nothing. The buildings, the programs, the activities are all inconsequential. So there's much to be said about that. But we are not going to fester too much on it. So in Jeremiah, there is this word come from the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates and worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in the deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah, prophesying before this happened, tells the people, your ways are what matter. Your life is what matters. Your ways are what matters. The temple of the Lord does not fix your ways. The only thing that can fix your ways is a change of heart by Jesus Christ himself. Jeremiah himself says the leper can't change his spots, nor the Ethiopian change his skin. But the Lord can change the heart. The Lord can change the heart. And he goes on in Jeremiah, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another... If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in this land, that I gave of old to your, fa to your fathers forever. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. So he here proclaims openly that the temple is not the solution. The building is not the solution. There's more. All of this is set up to this letter. And Ezra bringing the law. He has shown you, O oh man. This is uh, Micah chapter 6 verse 8. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. To act justice or to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Now, this is a fun passage to translate. It would actually translate probably something more along the lines to do justice, to do Hesed, deep, abiding, loving mercy, uh, and to walk humbly with your God. 
This is the what the Lord requires of His people, even when everything is going well in the world, even when everything is going right with the people of God and the temple has been rebuilt, the sacrifice has been restored and everything is going well, complacency still can slip in. So as we read Ezra, we want to remember that we do not want to be complacent. Simple application. We want to be disciplined followers of Jesus who love Him because He is worthy of all our love. We do not want to become complacent. We want to work in the kingdom for the joy of the Lord. So we have here Ezra. Let's back up. People here need a new heart. In particular, the people of God need a new heart. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 through 38, talks about God taking your heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. There is a holy temple. Now they need a holy people. Enter Ezra. Ezra comes, and he's a man. We talked about this last time. He comes at the right time. He's from the line of priests. He's a scribe of the law, of the word of God. He has the hand of God on him, and he has a purpose to place the law of God before the people of God. He has a purpose to place the law of God before the people of God. And remember, we talked about Jesus as the better Ezra. He comes, unlike Ezra, who comes from Babylon to Jerusalem, Jesus comes from heaven to earth. He's appointed by God. He's not from Ezra. He's not from the line of Aaron. He's from the line of Judah even the kingly line, and he's a priest of the order of Melchizedek who lives forever and doesn't die, which is great because there's a a rule in the high priesthood. If the high priest is alive and you run to a city of refuge for salvation after you've done some sort of sin, you run to a city of refuge for salvation, you get life until the high priest dies. When the high priest dies, you go on to trial. Here's the great thing about our Lord and Savior. He never dies. So we get life and we get life eternal. Because we run to the city of refuge, which is Jesus, and we trust in Him. And as our high priest, He will never die. And we, our sin is covered forever, past, present, and future. And if you have a problem with that, I'm sure Dad mentioned this when he talked about Tetelestai. If you have a problem with future sins being covered, just remember all your sins were future sins when He was on the cross. It's great. He was appointed by God. He is eternal. He is better. He is a better tent or temple. He's a better tent or temple than we have and he is a better covenant if you want to read more about this i encourage you to take a week and look through the book of hebrews all the way through it just read it multiple times in the week these things will jump out at you jesus is a better everything now let's dive in to our text this morning Uh, we have first the greeting in chapter 7, verse 11 through 12. Then we're going to look at Artaxerxes' part of the greeting, where Artaxerxes tells you about his authoritative structure. We're going to talk about God's house in verse, uh, in chapter 7, verse 21 through 24. And then Ezra's instructions in 25 through 26. And then the benediction in 27 and 28. The letter ends in verse 26. So this is how we're going to handle it. We're going to go straight through this letter. Let's dive in and go fast. First. The greeting, Artaxerxes, king of kings. This is in verse uh, 11 here. He says, uh, or verse 12, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace. There's the greeting. 
Artaxerxes first identifies himself as king of kings. This is not a boast. This is not a boast. Okay, let's go back. This is not a boast. This is simply him stating that he is king uh, over other kings. He's king over other kings. He's not simply saying, he's not saying I'm the greatest of kings. He's literally telling you he rules over other kingdoms. And we know this because in Persian writings, he calls himself equal to the other kings. He's not saying that he's somehow greater. He's simply stating a fact that he's a king and there are other kings that he has, he has rule over at this time period. The Persians had a very interesting system. It was the, the system of toleration. It's one of the first times in history where toleration was prized above dominion. And they knew that they got better tax revenue if they simply let people exist on their own. So the Persian king Artaxerxes identifies himself as king of kings. He's a tolerant leader. And tolerant leaders are always this way. This is a simple reality. Second, he identifies God as the God of heaven, which is interesting. God here is not referred to as king. He's not referred to as king. He is something greater. Which is wild to think that the Persian king recognizes greater than a king. He recognizes that God is God of heaven. Beyond the scope of where we live, God is the God of heaven. He is beyond us. He's not king. He's something more. He's something otherworldly. He's something more. And we should take heart in this, that even the pagan king recognizes that there's that our God is somehow greater than everything else. Remember when Darius sent his letter, we saw that he recognized God doesn't have a home that confines him, but rather chooses to put his name places. That God chooses to put his name places, but he's not confined by anything. Darius recognizes that this God is greater than a king. So he calls him the God of heaven. And then he says peace, or rather, better translation would probably be perfect. This is a way of saying uh, that these instructions are organized and they are, they are given. The emphasis here on perfect or peace is a wishing upon you that everything would go smoothly. That's what he's doing here when he says, Artaxerxes, King of Kings, to Ezra. He's, he's telling him peace as in, I hope everything goes smoothly for you. Like, this is an organizational greeting, right? So, that's the greeting. Now we get to Artaxerxes' part. And first, let's talk about Artaxerxes' motive. The decree is issued with an understanding of God's Word. Did you see all the references to the law in your hand? The law in your hands in verse 14 and verse 25. And then again, in verse 12 and 21 and 26, he is a scribe of the law. This decree is issued with an understanding of God's word. He understands God's word, which is, again, amazing to think about the fact that a pagan king has had influence and been influenced by a random priest, by a random scribe. He's had influence in his life by a random scribe. This only this can only happen by miraculous work. Quiet, subtle, miraculous work of Ezra advising the king before the king sends him. 
He knows the law of God, evidently. There's an emphasis on the decree that he understands the word of God. The second, he's a heart compelled by God. There in verse 27. In verse 27, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. God put it in the heart of a pagan king who's a long way away from Jerusalem. Put it into his heart to beautify his house. To make his house more beautiful and more substantial. So the decree comes from a heart compelled by God. And the decree is coming from a place of understanding that God is the one in charge. God is the one in charge. Look at that there with Artaxerxes in verse 20. Whatever else is required of the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. Whatever requires, whatever requires from the house of God. And then again in verse 21, whatever the God of heaven requires of you, give. And then Whatever is freely offered in verse 15, whatever is freely offered to the God of Israel, to those who are dwelling in Jerusalem, they are to give openly. This is God's plan, God's work. And Artaxerxes realizes that God is the one in charge of this rebuilding. So that's the motive. Artaxerxes understands the word of God. He's got a heart compelled by God. And he understands that God is in charge. This is why when you talk to people, you put before them the word of God when you want to see things happen. The word of God is what compels the heart of man to do the work of God. The word of God is what compels the heart of man to do the work of God. So we put the word of God before people. We put the word of God in the hands of people. And as they read, as they study, as we speak it to them, as we live out life living the Word of God before them, they become more and more attuned to the Word of God. Their hearts become compelled to do the right thing. The Word of God changes the heart of man and his understanding that God is in charge. This is the motive that Artaxerxes had. Now let's talk about the substance of the letter. The substance. Every, first, everyone can go. You saw that there at the beginning in verse uh, 13. Anyone of the people of Israel or their priests, or Levites in my kingdom, who freely offers to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. Anyone gets to go. Anyone who wants to go, gets to go. Anyone who believes, gets to go. Verse 13. Second, they're sent with the authority of the king. They're sent with the authority of the king and and all his resources. Did you see that in there, how much stuff he gave them? He gave them a hundred baths, a hundred baths, a hundred things, a hundred. He gives them everything they need, as much salt as they want, anything that they need. By the way, if there's any that's lacking, take from the treasury. They're told they get access to taxes. They're told they get access to taxes. That would be as if we decided we were going to build a building and the federal government suddenly decided, hey, you get to access tax money for this. As much as you need. Whatever is required by the law of God. So if we could show it to them in scripture, we need this thing, then they would hand it to us. That's what they're getting. That is crazy. Talk about a violation of church and state. This is direct funding to the people of God by 
the government. Now, there's some weird arguments that are made here for things like reparations and various things like that that happen in the world. And I'd be happy to kick those around with you at lunch. But we're going to keep moving. So he's sent with the authority of the king and all the tax money of the king. They get access to whatever they want. Now, I just want to point out, this is something that happens all through Scripture. When Moses leads the people out of Egypt, remember that they pile gifts on them when they're leaving. They get to take all the money and all the spoil and they plunder their neighbors as they leave. Remember, when Abraham was in uh, Egypt as well, he did the same thing. He leaves with all this wealth and servants and livestock and things from Egypt. He does the same thing to Abimelech later when he... Uh, when he both times lying about his wife and God catches him and, and kind of saves him. And then he leaves those kings and gets wealth piled on him as he leaves. Right. So we've got all these miraculous things. This is how God always brings out his people. This is how he always does it. When he's bringing his people from slavery, from exile into the promised land, when he's bringing you into the kingdom of God, what he always does is bring them in with wealth and all that they need. All that they need. This is what God does for his people. Indeed, this is what he's going to do for us on the last day when he comes back and he restores heaven and earth and resurrects us to new life and we get new physical everything and God is there and we are brought into a kingdom which has treasures that have been stored up for you, kept in heaven for you, that are imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and that are beautiful for you to see with him and worship him in heaven and live in joy eternally. This is the way God brings us out. All the death, destruction, and pain that we feel here is gone. He brings us into heaven. This is the way God brings His people into life. They are given toleration for worship, which equals stability. Artaxerxes understands the importance of toleration. Worship is stability. Freedom in worship is stability in society. This is one of the beautiful things that we see in Christian society. Toleration and freedom in worship is stability in society. Whenever you clamp down on worship, whenever you clamp down on freedom of conscience, you end up with rebellion. That's what happens over and over and over in history. And fourth, we see that Artaxerxes distinguishes the God as the Israel's God. I want to take note just for a moment. Artaxerxes may or may not have believed. It doesn't tell us. But all the signs point to the idea that he didn't. He may or may not have believed. All the signs point to the idea that he didn't. He calls God of Israel. He calls them Israel's God. In verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, and verse 17. It's repeated. This is Israel's God. This is Ezra's God. This is the God of the people of Israel. This is who they are. He distinguishes their God from his God. He knows that this God is real. He knows that this God is big. He knows that this God is bigger than him. He is afraid of this God, but it is not his God, which we ought to take great heart in. The fact that our God reigns even over kings who do not acknowledge him, even over kings who do not know him, God reigns. 
All the things that are going on in our world do not surpass the power of our God's hands. They do not surpass the power of our God's hands. Now, we want to go to the next section, which is God's house. Verse 21 through 24. And I called this God's house because this is when they get to Israel. God is the one in charge. Artaxerxes sends them with the authority of the pagan king, with the authority of the Persian king. But this time they get to the house of God and he is the one in charge. So God's house in verses 7 in verses 21 through 24, it says, And I, Artaxerxes, the king, make a decree to all the treasurers beyond the province, beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt prescribing, without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven. Least his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. Artaxerxes is afraid of our God. Likewise, so should every king who stands on this earth today be afraid of our God. Because while Jesus... And while God is incredibly patient and merciful and long-suffering, He will not suffer forever. He will not wait forever. One day He will come and the judgment of the Lord will land on the earth and all will be set right. And those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation will run to Him as a child to a father and those who have not will cry out for the rocks to fall on them in fear and terror. This is the truth of scripture so he says when in god's house god is in charge whatever ezra says goes did you see that there he says it whatever ezra says goes whatever is decreed by the god of heaven let it be done in full for the house of god of heaven least the wrath be on the king we notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute or custom on it or toll on any of the priests or levites or the singers or the doorkeepers or the temples of the servants, or other servants. Let it be done as the scribe there in verse 21, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence. Ezra carries the law of, the, of God in his hands, and he is told, he's given authority by the priest to execute that law. So do whatever Ezra says, is what Artaxerxes says. Now imagine Ezra coming back to the land, and a bunch of pagan leaders and rulers and, and magistrates coming to him and going, hey, you're not allowed to do that. Ezra just has to hold up this letter. That's the power of what's going on here. Ezra now has proof, no, I get to do what I want. And, and not only do I get to do what I want, but I'm in charge. I'm the one. It's like in those movies when the police are at a scene and the FBI shows up and all of a sudden the police are like, well, we don't get to do anything now. And you the hero is always the policeman, right? Like, he's always the one that's like, oh, they're tying our hands. And you're hoping that he just breaks authority and goes and says, not here. This is Ezra shows up and he's got a writ. He's got a law. He's got something he can hand to them. So if they go, you're not allowed to do that. He can go, uh, actually, here's the paperwork. Get out of my way. He is in charge. So Ezra has the authority of the king. The leaders here derive their authority by the relationship they have to Ezra. And Ezra derives his authority from what? Look there again at verse 21. Ezra derives his authority from the law of the God of heaven. He's got this 
writ from the king that forces everyone to listen to him. But look at where he calls his authority from. Even with the king, the, the word of God is where he derives his authority. In the same way, the leaders you look to nowadays, the godly people that you look to lead your life, to disciple you, to show you how to live, they should derive their authority from the law of God, from the word of God. If a pastor, including me, fails to give you the word, then they have failed to lead. They have failed to lead you. If you are listening to somebody online and they are failing to exposit the word of God, they have failed to lead you. They might have great advice. It might be wonderful. But if they don't have the authority of scripture, they've got nothing to give you. It's scripture that changes the heart of men. It's scripture that leads us. It's scripture that that gives us the right way to live. Therefore, if a pastor, elder, deacon, teacher, friend, godly mentor fails to give you the word of God, then they have failed to lead you. We derive our authority from the word of God. We derive our authority from the word of God. And I pray every day that I would not fail you in this. And I would not fail you in this. And that on the day that I do, that on the day that I do, you will call me out on it. And we will walk together as people who sit under the authority of the word of God and not under some authority of some role that was given to somebody. But under the authority of the word of God, because therein lies the power of leadership in the church. The role here is prescribed by scripture. Ezra's role is a scribe of the law of God. He is a man who is supposed to be under the law of God. Likewise, leaders now must have the word of God. You want to be a leader in the world? You want to be a leader in a church? You want to be a leader among the people of God? Know the word of God. Know the word of God and you will lead. This is what leadership is. Then he says, whatever the God of heaven requires. This is repeated over and over, but in verse 23 in particular, this is his house. It is the house of God. It is not the house, note, it's not the house of the people of God. It's not the house of the congregation. It's not the house of Israel. It's the house of God. This is God's house. Likewise, the church is not yours or mine. It is his. The church is his. The church is the church of the living God. It is his people. We are his people, which ought to change the way that we approach one another, shouldn't it? It ought to make it so that when we approach one another, we recognize we're approaching God's people. That ought to give veneration and honor to everybody in the group. You're not approaching one of my people. Don't get me wrong. I'm incredibly possessive of Sovereign Grace Fellowship. I'm ridiculously possessive of you. And yet, I recognize that you are God's, not mine. That I don't somehow have some rule over you and you don't have some rule over me. Rather, both of us have under the Lord God Almighty are his people. We are family that has been knit together in Christ Jesus. You don't get to choose your family. God does that for you. And so here we believe scripture sits over all of us. This is not 
my house or your house. It is God's house. It is God's house. And then the third thing is free of taxation. He says down there at the bottom in verse 24, there's no toll or custom or tribute that can be imposed on the house of God. This is a house of God that is free of taxation. This is one of the first places in the scripture where we see clear, distinct political understanding that you do not tax God's house, that you do not tax the house of God. This is uh, where we do, this is one of the places where we derive as a nation our idea of separation of church and state through taxation. You should not tax the house or the work of God. The house of God is not the government's house. The government is under God. And this is God's house, and he does what he wants. Now, just side note, I was asked once a long time ago whether or not I would want to pay whether or not I should pay tithe off gross or net. This is a great answer. I got two great answers. One was the one that my father-in-law was given by a pastor that he was being counseled with once that said, well, how much do you want God to bless? Do you want him to bless the net or the gross? (laughs) That'll change it, right? Okay, I want him to bless the gross. The second thing is whose house is first? God's house or the government's house? Whose house is first? Those were the two answers I got. Both of them are there. I just wanted to throw that out there to let that sit on you. If you're thinking about giving, do you want God to give to bless your gross or your net? It's a great question. Second one, whose house is first? God's house or the government's house? I hope you'd be wise enough to say God's house, right? So uh, just a note of encouragement. The government can, should not and cannot tax the church. It shouldn't. There should be no taxation on church. I'm saying that now verbally out loud because I'm going to put this on the podcast and it will be uh, forever cemented in the internet. Therefore, when they come to arrest me, eventually they'll have some ammunition. So free of taxation, the government's the government has no place to tax the church. Now we've got God. We've got the greeting. Our desertion's part. God's house. Ezra's instructions in verses 25 through 26. Let's just run through these uh, for fun. First, He is supposed to do this according to the word of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hands. He carries the book of the law in his hands. He's got his Bible in his hand. So he's a scribe of the word of God. This is the word of God in his hands. He does these things according to the word of God. Now, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in the righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every and competent for every good work. This scripture is breathed out by God. I want you to understand when you go to do something and you carry the word of God with you, you are carrying the animating force of life. What Paul is referencing is creation itself. When God breathes into the nostrils of man and man comes to life. When you carry the scriptures in your hand, you are carrying life itself for other people. Not only that. When you deny reading the scriptures for yourself, you are slowly suffocating. Because life itself is breathed into you by the scripture. So you feel despondent, discouraged. You feel heavy or weighted. Perhaps, just perhaps, you ought to spend more time reading. Just perhaps you ought to spend more time letting it breathe into you. And reading's not the only way. Being around community of faith that breathes life into you by telling you what they're learning in Scripture is part of it. 
worshiping the Lord God in private and in public, in corporate worship and in private worship, making beautiful things to the Lord and letting the Word of God wash over you while you do it. This is, this is all part of letting the Word of God breathe into you that you would have life and life abundant and full. Note he says here, it's according to the Word of God, and he tells him that, is, that Word is in Ezra's hand. That means that Ezra has had a reputation as one who uses the Word of God to get things done. One who is so immersed in the Word of God that when you ask him why he does something, he goes, well, it says in Deuteronomy chapter such and such, this, and therefore I thought that I should do that. Ezra is one who carries about in his heart and in his life the Word of God, and likewise, so should we. So should we. Next, he gives instructions. So the first one is according to the will of God, or the Word of God, and then he says these instructions. One, you are to organize and teach. You are to appoint magistrates and judges, and for those who know the Word of God, and you are to teach those who do not know the Word of God. So they're supposed to appoint magistrates and judges. Uh, in the New Testament, we are encouraged in multiple places to consider our leaders, to consider those who lead us. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, you are to look at the leaders, consider the outcome of their way of life, and then imitate their faith. That's based on the assumption that the outcome of their way of life is good, right? So then, uh, appoint magistrates and judges again in 1 Corinthians 11. 1, Paul says to them, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We have leaders in life that imitate Jesus. Follow them and imitate them. Then, um, you are, so Ezra first was to appoint judges and magistrates. Indeed, in the church, we have these leaders that we are to imitate. Perhaps the imitation of these leaders and the need for them to know the Word of God and have a seasoned walk with the Word of God is the reason that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, we are encouraged not to put people in leadership who are new converts. We are encouraged to put people in leadership who have seasoned, long-time walks with the Lord who have been through some stuff. That is one of the reasons that we don't put new converts in leadership, but rather we are careful who we put there. Second, those who do not know, Ezra is supposed to teach. Those who do not know, Ezra is supposed to teach. Isn't it great to know that you don't have to have everything figured out right away? Ezra is going back to Jerusalem and he's about to raise up magistrates and judges and he's going to find himself lacking people who know the Word of God. Guess what? You can learn and grow. You might not be an elder now. You might not be a godly woman now, you might not be the level of maturity that you need to be to do the things that you want to do right now. But praise the Lord, I'm not who I was yesterday. I grow. Likewise, you are not who you were before. You are growing in Christ Jesus. And this is one of the beautiful things about the church is that we can grow together. We can lead each other. Those who do not know, you teach. In Colossians chapter 1, Verse 9 through 12, it says, And so from the day that we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul recognized that people were growing. 
This was a congregation, Colossae, where people were already great. He loved them already. They were already doing a good job. He's commending them. And then he recognizes that they're growing. And we keep reading. It says, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Paul recognized that you would grow in Christ, in knowledge and in wisdom, that this is a growing process. Second, we see in James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. First, we get to grow, right? Growing is part of being a Christian. Second, did you know you can ask God to give you wisdom, and he will do it? Did you know that you can ask God to give you wisdom, and he will give you wisdom? He will give it to you. You will grow, and he will give you wisdom. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, through really the end of the chapter, it talks a great deal about how you can be filled and blessed by being filled with the knowledge of God. And then here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, it says, And it is my prayer for you, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and Sorry about the S there. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You can grow. You are growing. You will grow, assuming that you have a faithful relationship with Jesus Christ. So you may not be there yet. But that does not mean that Christ is going to leave you in on the bench. He's going to move. He's going to grow. You will grow. So he's given instructions to teach, appoint judges, those who do not know teach. And then finally, I want you to take note that the law has always been evangelical. The law, the word of God, has always been an evangelical tool. The, Paul says that the Old Testament, the, the law of God, really the law itself was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. The purpose of the law is to point you to your need for Christ. It is to point you for the fact that you can't do it, that he must do it. He must be the one who saves. That is the point of the law. The strength of the law has always been that it is evangelical. There's a mixed multitude that comes out of Egypt and the mixed multitude that walks with Moses. This is a beautiful, beautiful truth. Now, Jesus. I wanted to conclude by thinking just for a minute about Christ. First, Ezra brings the law to the people. And he brings it to them. And there's this statement here in verse 26. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his good or for imprisonment. He's sent with the power to judge. Ezra is sent with the law and the power to judge. But Jesus is the better Ezra. He writes the law in our hearts. Unlike putting it before us with punishment, he writes the law on our hearts. It says, this is the covenant in Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And the author of Hebrews repeats this in chapter 8, verse 10, in which he says that this is true of us. Hears, writes the law in our hearts. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink 
but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, God writes this on your hearts. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. And I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. We have, and then it's repeated again in Ezekiel 36, verse 27. We have this beautiful picture of God giving us life and giving us a new heart. He has written this law on our hearts. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart. God has done this. The word of God has come. Jesus Christ has written it on our hearts. He has renewed us, restored us and changed us. You want to know all that you can be? Look deeply into the word of God, for that is what he has written on your heart that you would see and savor in him. Second, Jesus is the better Ezra and that he dwells with us and walks with us. Ezra comes to the people, bringing the law of God to hand to them. Jesus puts it on our hearts. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He dwells with us. In John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, in John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. And he promises us the Holy Spirit indwelling us in chapters 14 through 17. And then, I'm sorry, I missed one. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? God has come, Jesus has come, that you would have life and that you would have life abundant in Him. Jesus is the better Ezra who writes the law on our hearts and dwells with us and walks with us. Isn't that beautiful? And finally, we come to the benediction. In the benediction, it says here, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the King to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and to extend and who extended to me His steadfast love before the King and His counselors before the king's mighty officers. So what did Ezra do? When he was confronted with the truth and the reality that God was in charge of everything, that God had extended grace to him, that God had given him all the work, did he just go stay in Babylon and take a nap? No. He took full courage to spread the work and word of God to the people of God. He says, I took courage for the hand of my Lord, of the Lord my God, was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Ezra, like us, has been commissioned to change the world around him. To confront the world with the word of God. And to live out that word of God in community. Sounds an awful lot like what we've been commissioned to do. So likewise, we must do this in the courage that he gives us, knowing full well that he has accomplished his purpose and we have been a part of that purpose. How joyful it is to see the kingdom of God come and the people of God on this earth. Lord, we pray that you would be delighted by 